1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, have you ever wondered how Pittsburgh got the nickname Steel Town? I have some ideas. (laughs) It's thanks in part to today's podcast subject. Uh, We're talking about Andrew Carnegie, and that's... Uh, I want to make a note about his last name because you'll hear it said Carnegie pretty frequently. Um, Carnegie with more of an A sound is also not uncommon. And we've talked about him on the show. And I think we've used probably both of those pronunciations because there's so much variance. Um, for the purposes of this, since it is all about his life, we're going to go with Carnegie because that sounds the closest to the way uh, his family seems to pronounce it. Uh so, I might
0: say we're gonna, we're gonna try to do that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but it's one of those
0: things where when you have said something a certain way your entire life and then you try to say it a different way, sometimes you mess it up and you don't notice until you're QAing the podcast <laughs> and then it is too
1: late to do it over. That is a hundred percent correct. And because it is one of those things, like I don't think I have ever heard anybody utter the words Carnegie Hall, but they say Carnegie Hall all the time. Yeah. Same thing. So uh, keep in mind, that's just part of like that cultural pronunciation shift that sometimes happens. We're go- we're going for the correct one. We may slip up. Uh, but the point is that his life story is one that is pretty inspiring in some ways. It's uh, the story of a child who started out in just abject poverty and then went on to make more money than he ever could have possibly imagined when he was that child that was part of a family that was really struggling but his life, while largely charmed, and I don't I don't want to make it sound like he didn't earn anything because he worked really hard and he was really good at seeing opportunities and then working really hard to make those opportunities work for him. Um But there was some charm in it that those opportunities did come up in his life. He did, however, have one sort of massive scar of bad judgment in his life. Um but then famously, and what he's probably most known for today, is the fact that he decided that the most important thing that he could do with his millions and millions and millions of dollars was to give it all away.
0: Yeah, one of the things that's really interesting to me about him is like today, you will hear a lot of people talk about wealth disparity as a problem, and he had he had no issues whatsoever with wealth disparity. He was like, he just sort of thought that was... How it's life's going to be? It's no problem with that, but that the people that had all the wealth should be doing useful things with it, uh, which to me is an interesting point of view. Yeah. Andrew Carnegie was born on November twenty fifth, eighteen thirty five, in Dunfermline, Scotland. His father, William, was a weaver, and Dunfermline had been known for quite some time for beautiful linen, and particularly for its damask linen.
1: William struggled in his trade as industrialization became more and more common and hand-loomed goods couldn't keep up as steam-powered looms became more and more popular. The family really struggled to make ends meet, but William was obstinate that he wanted to remain a weaver, even though he couldn't really support his family doing that. And as a chartist, William Carnegie believed that the way to make change was to get working men elected into Parliament so that they could make change at the legislative level that would help working men like him.
0: If you're not familiar with the term chartist, that sort of sums up the whole thing. It was a national working class effort at parliamentary reform. So William and his brother-in-law, Tom Morrison... Both were committed to the Chartist cause. They were organizing strikes. They were writing for Chartist publications. And meanwhile, Andrew's mother, Margaret Morrison Carnegie, stepped up by taking work, mending shoes, and running a small grocery to try to keep the family afloat. Seeing his parents struggle and also living in poverty as a child deeply impacted the young Andrew.
1: Yeah, he wrote about it later in his life. We'll talk about that. But basically, he... Seeing his father have to beg for work really, really stuck with him forever. Uh, Margaret's sister, in the meantime, had moved to the United States and settled in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She was there for like eight years before it started to become a possibility for the Carnegie's to follow. And Margaret's sister was writing letters back to Scotland, assuring Margaret that conditions were far better in the U.S., particularly for working people. And these missives really started Margaret thinking about a cross-Atlantic move as one of the family's few remaining options at making a better life. She managed to convince William that it was
0: worth the risk, and to be clear, this was a lot of risk. Once they got to the United States, they would have less than nothing. They had to sell all their belongings and then borrow money on top of that just to pay for the voyage.
1: The Carnegie's, that's William, Margaret, Andrew, and Andrew's younger brother, Thomas, crammed into small quarters on the Wiccaset, which is a ship sailing from Glasgow for a 50-day voyage. No surprise, this was not a great way to spend nearly two months. Passengers were often asked to help out with tasks aboard the undermanned ship, but many were too seasick or just weak from poor nutrition. This was not a luxury cruise. They weren't really getting everything they needed. And Andrew would volunteer for various additional duties in exchange for favors or a little extra food or some other benefit for his family.
0: The Carnegies made their trip across the Atlantic in 1848. And Ellis Island wouldn't open for another 44 years. The Wicasset landed on the southern tip of Manhattan at the Battery. They had several more legs of the journey, though, to make by boat. First, they took a steamer to Albany along the Hudson River. Then they made their way to Buffalo via the Erie Canal. And from there, they took several more smaller legs to get to the north side of Pittsburgh, which at that point was Allegheny, Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah, that, that, uh, Allegheny township eventually got absorbed into the larger Pittsburgh metro area. But if you look at a map and you chart out this route that they took, it becomes immediately obvious that it was really a long way to do it. Uh, and these were, as I mentioned a moment ago, about as distant from luxury cruises as you could get. The family was, of course, very poor and they were traveling at the cheapest rates that they could get. And it took three weeks to get from the battery in Manhattan to the Pittsburgh area, a trip that today takes about six hours by car or 90 minutes by direct flight.
0: Margaret might have had romantic ideas about the new life that she and her family were going to start in Pennsylvania, but once they got there, they had some harsh realities waiting for them. For one, the city was already dealing with pollution from industrialization, a fire that had ravaged the downtown area three years before they got there from Scotland, Uh, left the city with a coat of soot that was still there. Carnegie would later write that if you washed the soot off your face and your hands, they would be coated again an hour later, and it wasn't a place where a newcomer family with no money could live in any kind of comfort. He described this as a more or less miserable situation.
1: William Carnegie did find work. He got a job working in a cotton factory. And for a while, Andrew worked in the same factory as a bobbin boy. He was paid a dollar twenty per week to run bobbins to the weavers as needed and on occasion to perform maintenance tasks on the machines. Later in his life, Carnegie wrote of this time, quote, It was a hard life. In the winter, Father and I had to rise and breakfast in the darkness, reach the factory before it was daylight, and with a short interval for lunch, work till after dark. The hours hung heavily upon me, and in the work itself, I took no pleasure. But the cloud had a silver lining, as it gave me the feeling that I was doing something for the world, my family. I've made millions since, but none of those millions gave me such happiness as my first week's earnings. Soon, the young Andrew moved into a
0: different factory job, working with a boiler and a steam engine. This was hard work, but it offered a substantial raise over being a bobbin' boy. Now he was making $2 a week.
1: Through a connection of his uncles, Andrew transitioned to another job as a messenger for the city telegraph office in 1850 when he was 14. He was a really hard worker and he took these duties very seriously. He made a point to memorize all the streets of Pittsburgh, as well as the names and addresses of messenger recipients that were frequent so that he could be as efficient as possible in his job. Part of this was so he could recognize any of the gentlemen that might be receiving a a telegram message or any of their servants on the street and be able to hand something off without maybe always having to go full distance to deliver it so he could be way faster and get more done. Initially, he was not sure if he could handle this job. And in his interview, he told the hiring manager as much. But he also said that he would do his best and that he would like a trial. And his worries were unfounded. He did really well. And he had moved up to earning $2.50 a week. And he found the position, he wrote, quote, in every respect, a happy one. He only had one suit that was appropriate to wear to work.
0: And it was the same suit that he would normally wear to church on Sunday. So when he got home late on Saturday nights, his mother would wash and press the suit so it would be ready for the next day. And he wrote adoringly about her, saying, quote, There was nothing that heroine did not do for the struggle we were making for elbow room in the Western world.
1: Yeah, Andrew was very close to his mother, and that relationship will be uh, really important to how his life plays out a little bit later. But even though he was working in these, you know, sort of uh, relatively menial jobs, even though it had gotten much better as a messenger boy, throughout all of this, he was really drawn to both culture and information. So when he found out that he would have to deliver a telegraph message to a theater, for example, he would arrange that to be one of his last tasks of the day so that he could then stay and watch the performances. And he also took advantage of every possible opportunity he had when he had access to books and he read voraciously.
0: We're going to get into his transition into more lucrative work after we first take a little sponsor break.
1: As a messenger, Andrew would sweep the office in the morning before the telegraph operators arrived. And one morning, he actually took a message that came through when no operators had yet begun their shift. And he did a good enough job that the operators started asking him to keep an eye on the telegraph when they needed to step away. He eventually learned to take messages by ear. So without the help of a running slip of paper to print the message out, he would just write it down as he heard it. A significant promotion followed when he subbed in for another operator on a two-week trial, because people realized he was actually quite good at this. And he was soon given the title of assistant operator, and he was making $25 a month. While working for the
0: Telegraph office, Andrew met a man named Thomas A. Scott. At the time, Scott was superintendent of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Scott noticed how diligent and driven the young Carnegie was and made him an offer to leave the telegraph office and become Scott's private secretary and also run his personal telegraph machine. Carnegie was offered $35 a month, and to him, that seemed like a fortune. So he took this job and started learning about the railroad industry.
1: Carnegie was once again doing really well because he carried that same work ethic into every position he had, and he was making a name for himself at the Pennsylvania Railroad. But his father, in the meantime, had not met with success in the United States. After struggling to make enough money through weaving jobs, William Carnegie made a stab at entrepreneurship, and he tried manufacturing his own cloth and then selling it as a traveling salesman, but that really never took off. William died in 1855 when Andrew was 20, and that left the eldest son as the primary breadwinner in the family. A
0: year after William's death, Andrew started to expand out his business efforts. He invested in the Woodruff Sleeping Car Company with a loan, and it paid off. Soon he was making $5,000 a year from his investment, which is so much more than he had been earning from his railroad income. He was also promoted to railroad superintendent in 1859, and he used his increased income to move himself and his mother into a
1: nicer home. Yeah, there's an interesting thing that plays out over and over where he starts making more and more and more money on investments. But for quite a while, he actually still kept his much lower paying job, which is kind of interesting to me. Uh, When the Civil War began, Thomas Scott, his boss, was hired by the Union to manage transportation of its troops. So was pretty natural since he ran a railroad that they were like, "Hey, why don't why don't you run a similar set setup for us?" Uh Carnegie was also hired. He was working alongside his boss as part of the war effort, and meanwhile, his earnings from that sleeping car company investment went toward a new business venture. He invested eleven thousand dollars in oil in eighteen sixty one, and he almost doubled his money in the first year. I think he he took in something like eighteen thousand dollars. From there, he began diversifying his investments further, and soon he was earning more than $40,000 a year from them. That was a massive sum in the 1860s. Andrew Carnegie was drafted in
0: 1864, but he didn't wind up serving. As part of the draft terms, he had the option to pay a sum of $300 or find a replacement to serve in his stead. So he opted to pay another man $850 to to fill his slot.
1: And by the time the war ended, Andrew Carnegie had come to the realization that the iron industry had great potential. And in a surprising move, he left the Pennsylvania Railroad, and he started a new company in 1865 called the Keystone Bridge Company.
0: Keystone's entire business was upgrading existing wooden bridges to sturdier iron structures. And this proved to be extremely lucrative. Just a few years into it, he had made himself wealthy. In 1867, he started the Keystone Telegraph Company, which cut such a lucrative deal with the Pennsylvania Railroad to run telegraph wire on the railroad's poles that Carnegie and his partners were able to flip the business and triple their money in a very short period of time. His estimated worth in 1868 was $400,000. So, caveat, it is always really tricky to convert historical worth into modern value but a rough estimate is that this was about $5 million. He was only 33.
1: Yeah, and I did want to point out that, you know, he was making these deals still with the Pennsylvania Railroad, so even though he had left, he really left on good terms and maintained business dealings with them for a long time that were always quite positive. And riding high on his string of successes, Andrew Carnegie decided that he was only going to give business two more years before turning to a life of philanthropy. He wrote this plan out in a letter to himself in 1868, and he had calculated out that he could live comfortably off the money he had made by allocating himself $50,000 each year and then using the rest of the money to benefit causes that he believed in.
0: But in 1870, he wasn't quite ready to say goodbye to all these various industries. That same year, he also met a young woman named Louise Whitfield through a mutual friend. And Andrew became social with the Whitfield family.
1: Yeah, he was interested in Louise, but he was interested in a lot of women. It was pretty casual. Um, but then when Carnegie was almost 37, he learned about Henry Bessemer's refining process that could convert large amounts of iron into steel. And he learned about that while he was visiting Bessemer's plants in England. Carnegie believed so strongly in this process and the steel that it turned out that he invested all of his money, plus a loan, so that's a lot of money at that point, to build a steel plant in Pittsburgh. The plant was completed in 1875, and it was named the Edgar Thompson Works after the head of the Pennsylvania Railroad. In 1880, Andrew began a
0: relationship with Louise Whitfield And this courtship was a bit of a May-December romance because Andrew was 45 at the time and Louise was 23. But it appears to have stayed pretty innocent, in part because Andrew had promised his mother that he would never marry while she was still alive. Andrew and his mother were incredibly close, and as he became the primary breadwinner in the family, he had assured his mother that he would provide for the, the comforts that she had gone without when he was growing up. So they were together a great deal of the time, and his mother Margaret was even known to walk into business meetings along with her son.
1: Yeah, I think he was trying to make up for the, the bad times they had had in the past and so he really was a little bit indulgent of her uh, but he adored her and while some people might have been chagrined at this kind of obstacle Louise was actually in a unique position to understand Andrew Carnegie's prioritization of his mother Louise was also very very close to her mother who needed ongoing medical care
0: In 1881, Andrew became business partners with Henry Clay Frick by purchasing a controlling interest in Frick's Coke company. Coke was a coal-based fuel. That same year, he took his mother, Margaret, back to Scotland, and he asked Louise Whitfield to join them on the trip. His mother, though, shut that idea completely down.
1: Yeah, she was not cool with it. Uh, Two years later, Andrew bought an additional steel mill, the Homestead Works. And he also became secretly engaged to Louise in the autumn of 1883, content, it seemed, to just wait out the remainder of Margaret Carnegie's life.
0: This is something we would describe as, in modern terms, not having healthy boundaries.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of interesting because Louise's mother was very close to Louise, but really was kind of the opposite. She was like, no, I want you to go out and be with other people and live your own life. Whereas Louise was like, but I want to take care of you. And Andrew Carnegie's mother seemed like, no, no, this you promised me. (laughs) Me first. So three years into this
0: engagement, in the summer of 1886, Andrew wrote to Louise, quote, I have not written to you because it seems you and I have duties which must keep us apart. Everything does hang upon our mothers with both of us. Our duty is the same, to stick to them, to the last. I feel this every day.
1: An essay written by Andrew Carnegie was published in Forum Magazine in 1886, and in it he wrote passionately about workers' rights specifically their right to unionize.
0: That was a big year for Carnegie in the writing department. He also published a book entitled Triumphant Democracy, and this work celebrated the United States Republic and suggested that Great Britain could benefit from following a similar model to the one that was in place in the States.
1: Yeah, it was very... uh, It it kind of suggested that the, the United States had become... The the next step, kind of in evolution of of Great Britain's society, like in going out and colonizing, they had kind of gotten to that next level, in his opinion. Uh, Carnegie lost both his brother and his mother in a very short period of time. Thomas died in October eighteen eighty six from pneumonia that he had initially thought was just a cold. In the following month, Margaret Carnegie died also from pneumonia. She had already been quite ill when Thomas, who was living in Georgia at the time, died, and nobody actually told her of her younger son's passing for fear of upsetting her while she was so ill. Similarly, when Margaret died, Andrew was sick with typhoid, and his mother's death was not immediately relayed to him. Uh, They actually lowered her coffin out of a bedroom window so he would not see it passing in the hallway.
0: After Margaret Carnegie died, it removed that obstacle that had kept Andrew and Louise from beginning a life together. But the couple waited to announce their plan to marry out of respect for Margaret, and because Andrew was still quite sick for a while. But as he later wrote, quote, I recovered slowly and the future began to occupy my thoughts. There was only one ray of hope and comfort in it. That comfort, of course, was Louise. And while Andrew had spent time with other women, it was more apparent to him than ever that she was the one he wanted to spend his life with.
1: And their engagement had been on again, off again. It wasn't like they were two people so passionately in love that they were like, anything, we'll get through anything. For example, when he wrote her that letter and was like, "Eh, it's pretty much all about our moms, that was kind of like... that was a breakup (laughs) a a down period yeah it was kind of like not really gonna happen and so when he first reached out after having this revelation and was like i am ready you and me he was initially a bit surprised that she kind of came off a little indifferent to him she had also spent time with potential suitors as well some of whom were younger than carnegie and closer to her own age but more importantly, she really wanted to be an important contributor in her spouse's life. And she just wasn't sure that a man with so much money could ever really need her.
0: She visited him while he was staying with some friends, and she saw, in Andrew's words, quote, that I needed her. I was left alone in the world. So Andrew and Louise were married on April twenty second, 1887. The ceremony took place in Louise's family home with just 30 guests and no attendants. Andrew was 51 when he married Louise, who was 30.
1: Before the wedding took place, Louise actually signed a prenup, indicating that she did not want any of her fiancé's money and that he intended to give her nothing in the will other than an allowance to live comfortably.
0: In a moment, we'll talk about how Andrew Carnegie's steel mill in Homestead, Pennsylvania, became the site of one of the most violent conflicts over workers' rights in United States history. But we're going to take a little sponsor break before we get to it.
1: business interests had continued to yield a massive income over the years. And throughout his life, he had always continued to champion the cause of the working man, at least in word. Indeed, the situation was not actually so rosy. In
0: 1887, the same year that he married Louise, Carnegie had friction with Frick over a labor strike. Frick wanted to form a coalition with other companies to shut out laborers that wanted to strike, cutting off their source of income. But at that point, Carnegie and Not Frick had the controlling share of the company, and he was able to force a settlement. But this was really a temporary stay. In
1: 1892, another conflict between mill workers at the Carnegie-owned Homestead Steel Mill and the management resulted in a deadly conflict that contradicted the image of Carnegie as a workers' rights advocate.
0: The steel workers employed by Carnegie and Frick faced incredibly dangerous working conditions for very poor pay. Two years earlier, in 1890, steel revenues had started to decline. And then in 1892, Henry Frick slashed workers' pay and set out to break the Steelworkers' Union. And Andrew Carnegie was not blameless in this conflict.
1: For one thing, in anticipation of the union contract expiring, Carnegie had told Frick to increase production so that they would have the leverage to shut down the plant if the workers didn't accept the new terms without losing any ground in their production schedule. Carnegie was in Great Britain as all this was playing out, and he sent word to Frick that he supported Frick in whatever he chose to do. Frick, emboldened
0: by the statement, severely reduced the workers' wages. And the workers, who had invested so much time and labor in increasing the mill's revenue, even some of them experiencing terrible accidents in the process, were not willing to back down. Frick declared that he would not negotiate with the union, and he would only talk to individual workers. The dissolution of the union was a point in the negotiations that just could not be resolved, even after all the others were. And then Frick closed down the mill and locked all the workers out.
1: Yeah, at this point, it was kind of like one of those situations where, you know, there's a company that people have been part of for a long time. And they feel like they are not necessarily part owners in the company, but like that they own, they have a sense of ownership over what the company is and the culture. And and that's really part of why these workers were so invested in this. They were like, no, this is like our home. We want to make it better. And the workers actually tried to reach out to Carnegie, but he was on vacation in Scotland and contact just couldn't be made. Carnegie had wanted to do away with the union because they stipulated a need for more men than he wanted to pay. And he had left it to Frick to organize a new setup. And he didn't think the maintenance of a union at the mill was really going to be the big issue that it turned out to be.
0: So Frick turned the mill into a veritable fort, setting up a fence perimeter with rifle stations. Eventually, he also called in 300 men from the Pinkerton private police. When the Pinkerton detectives arrived, they were met by a full force of mill workers, and a 12-hour battle began. Throughout this shootout, the Pinkertons were trying to make landfall because they had arrived at the mill on river barges. But the workers were preventing most of their men from disembarking.
1: The Pinkerton forces actually tried to surrender four different times over the course of the day that this shootout played out, but their white flag was shot down each time. And on the fifth try, the surrender was finally accepted, but the aftermath was horrifying. With nearly a dozen people already dead, the surrendering Pinkertons were brutally beaten as a crowd of reporters and onlookers watched.
0: The Pinkertons left Homestead, but then Frick called in the National Guard so that strikebreakers could enter the mill to start working. Martial law was declared over the mill, and the strikebreaking workforce staffed the mill basically up to normal production levels in a matter of weeks.
1: But the tensions in the town remained. Strikebreakers were refused service in most businesses, and they risked being attacked on the street if they actually left the mill. An armed, organized attack on the 50 Black families who had moved in to find work during the strike resulted in multiple injuries, some of them very serious.
0: The violence that started with the Pinkertons' arrival in July of 1892 finally came to an end in November after the Union gave up. Strike leaders were charged with murder, and additional charges were leveled at 160 of the strikers, but none of the men were convicted of their crimes.
1: And initially, Carnegie, who had experienced the worst of this stuff going on while he was across the Atlantic Ocean, kind of saw the union giving in as a victory. He was at that point able to increase the length of the workday and cut wages as the mill reorganized post-strike to become more profitable. But he soon felt regret over what had happened and particularly over how he had handled things.
0: In a letter to William Gladstone, Carnegie wrote, quote, such a foolish step, contrary to my ideals, repugnant to every feeling of my nature. Our firm offered all it could offer, even generous terms. Our other men had gratefully accepted them. They went as far as I could have wished, but the false step was made in trying to run the homestead works with new men. That is a test to which working men should not be subjected. It is expecting too much of poor men to stand by and see their work taken by others, The pain I suffer increases daily. The works are not worth one drop of human blood. I wish they had sunk.
1: Yeah, he really, really, pretty much for the rest of his life, regretted that whole thing and his part in it.
0: Well, and he's also, like, simultaneously...
1: uh, Makes it about him.
0: Yeah, yeah, and then also (laughs) is like, the other men gratefully accepted these terms.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, so allegedly, and I didn't look at the financial breakdown, but the terms that he had offered in other mills seemed like the men could potentially make more money, but they would not be able to have a union. And that was so important to them. Like, to him, it seemed like, of course, everybody would want this. Like, it's just a union. You don't need that. But he didn't realize that that was a vital part of their well-being as workers. Well, Uh,
0: the fact that they were working in a very dangerous environment for very little pay
1: kind of suggests that they did need the union. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. But to him, you know, I mean, I think that happens in business all the time, where sometimes people at the top of the food chain just look at it as columns of numbers and they don't think about, like, the actual human lives that are involved in producing the thing that their company makes or uh, you know, creating <laughs> this environment where it's actually, like, safe and good to work. <laughs> Uh, So, yeah, I think it was kind of that situation. Uh, But despite the horrific violence of the Homestead strike, somehow Andrew Carnegie's business interests survived and even thrived. And some historians have pointed to the fact that the the striking workers became so violent that they lost a little bit of the sympathy in the public eye. Uh, But his company, Carnegie Steel, was outproducing Great Britain's entire steel industry just a few years later at the turn of the century.
0: But by 1900, Andrew Carnegie, who was in his mid-60s, was finally feeling ready to spend more time with his family and less time working. He and Louise had had a daughter named Margaret after Andrew's mother in 1897. So even though he seemed to genuinely love business, he was also probably in the right frame of mind when the opportunity presented itself to sell everything he had.
1: J.P. Morgan offered to buy Carnegie out that year. And after thinking the matter over, Andrew Carnegie decided that it was indeed time to leave business and begin philanthropy in earnest. He had been doing philanthropic works prior to that, but he decided that was kind of going to be his second career. And so he wrote down his asking price just on a little slip of paper, and he had an employee of his hand deliver it. Morgan made no counteroffer, but immediately accepted the deal
0: and bought Carnegie Steel for $480 million. Of that sum, Carnegie walked away with $250 million. The portion that went to Carnegie has been estimated at a modern value somewhere between 4 and $5 billion.
1: Yeah, and that's one of those things. Uh, sometimes you'll see it reported a little bit in a confusing way because since there are two figures involved there, that $480 million purchase price versus the $250 million purchase that was Carnegie's out of that deal. You'll sometimes see one or the other just reported on its own, so I wanted to make sure we included both of those for clarity. Uh And right in the midst of this sellout, by the way, was the time that Cassie Chadwick was feigning to be Carnegie's daughter in a massive fraud scheme. And since Andrew Carnegie never really knew anything about that until it came to light during Chadwick's arrest and her trial, which he did attend, it didn't really impact his life. Uh It was not something he really thought a whole lot about other than being... Uh, um, kind of amused about it. But I wanted to contextualize it on the timeline since that previous episode about Cassie does mention Carnegie.
0: Andrew Carnegie spent the rest of his life trying to give away all his money. In 1890, two years before the Homestead strike, he had written a popular book titled The Gospel of Wealth, in which he wrote about the duty that wealthy men have to better the lives of people with less. And he was intent on living up to that writing he focused on giving money away in ways that were enriching and would have lasting impact.
1: Yeah, he was he did not just want to hand people money. He wanted to figure out how he could build something into the world that would keep people uh enriched long term. And as part of his philanthropic efforts, He built a library and a concert hall in Homestead, Pennsylvania, and he set up retirement funding for the workmen under the Andrew Carnegie Relief Fund, writing that it was, quote, as an acknowledgement of the deep debt which I owe the workmen who have contributed so greatly to my success.
0: He funded nearly 3,000 libraries in the United States and abroad. The library where I get most of my materials for this podcast is, in fact, a Carnegie library. He felt that with access to knowledge and a desire to learn, anyone could become educated, even outside of the formal education structures.
1: Yeah, since that was really how he had become educated and become a successful person, he thought, like, I want to give that avenue to everyone who might want it. But he also funded many uh, actual formal institutes of higher learning. So... Uh, Carnegie Mellon University is the modern-day outgrowth of a $2 million endowment that Andrew Carnegie established in 1900 to set up technical schools in the Pittsburgh area.
0: In 1902, he founded the Carnegie Institution of Washington with $22 million, all allocated towards scientific discovery. And in 2007, this organization became the Carnegie Institution for Science.
1: The Carnegie Corporation of New York was formed in 1911 to give away the remainder of the Carnegie fortune. And that entity remains and continues to fund trusts and educational institutions.
0: The Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs was initially named the Church Peace Union, and it was established in 1914 with a $2 million
1: endowment with the goal of finding alternatives to war. The Carnegie Foundation was established to build a courthouse and a library in The Hague for the permanent court of arbitration. That was $1.5 million in funding that was given by Carnegie to build what was called the Peace Palace. And the foundation continues that building's maintenance to this day.
0: There are many more such institutions funded by Andrew Carnegie, and as we mentioned in the Cassie Chadwick episode, you've probably seen a building or a school or a library that he funded.
1: After he retired from business to pursue philanthropy as his second career, Carnegie began writing his recollections of his youth and his rise to wealth from poverty. And in the foreword to his autobiography, which was published in nineteen twenty, his wife, Louise, wrote of their time in Scotland when World War II broke out. Quote, He delighted in going back to those early times, and as he wrote, he lived them all over again. He was thus engaged in July 1914 when the war clouds began to gather, and when the fateful news of the 4th of August reached us, we immediately left our retreat in the hills and returned to Skibo to be more in touch with the situation. These memoirs ended at that time.
0: World War I was hugely upsetting to Andrew Carnegie. He had been so focused on the idea of world peace that it was a jarring shock to see this conflict unfold. Carnegie was willing to put his remaining fortune to work to try to end the war. He would have offered Kaiser Wilhelm the second massive sums of money to end the conflict. But President Teddy Roosevelt blocked that effort. Andrew Carnegie never fully recovered from this failure, and he's often described as having been heartbroken over the matter in his last several years of life.
1: Andrew Carnegie died in 1919, two months after the Treaty of Versailles was signed. He had distributed $350 million of his fortune, and the rest was moved to the Carnegie Corporate Endowment. And as he said throughout his life, the man who dies rich dies in disgrace. Yeah, as Tracy and I have discussed, it's a, an interesting thing. He is is certainly lauded for his great generosity at the end of his life. <laughs> but he, he would not have had as much to give away had he not been letting people live in fairly mediocre circumstances, having worked dangerous jobs.
0: Yeah, he simultaneously advocated for the rights of workers and then like was also like the the people working for him weren't were not necessarily living comfortably, and his own idea of living comfortably when we said that part about he could live comfortably on something like fifty thousand dollars a year like
1: really that was like comfortably capital
0: c comfortably, yeah, that was sort of a a pretty
1: luxurious amount of comfort, yeah, yeah. Uh, so on the one hand, I'm like, thank you. Cause there's a lot of times I have benefited from his generosity, you know, in going to a library or, uh, also just research that's been done mm-hmm. that, that we have benefited from. But yeah,
0: conflict. Well, a lot of the libraries are really beautiful.
1: <laughs> a, a lot of the buildings that he, he funded were really quite spectacularly gorgeous. Like he had a good eye for picking good architects for sure. Do you want to hear about microbiology a little bit? I definitely do. Because that's in our listener mail today. It oh, is from good. Our, our listener, Stephanie, and she's writing about the Antony von Leeuwenhoek episode. And her email was titled, Anthony von Leeuwenhoek made my research possible. She writes, I'm an aquatic scientist completing my PhD in Australia. I loved your podcast on Antony von Leeuwenhoek as I do a lot of work with microscopes and I love hearing about early techniques. I study a group of algae called diatoms. They're special because their cell walls are made of glass. To our eye, they look like clumps of browned pond scum that you'd find on rocks, but under the microscope, they're very beautiful. I've attached some pictures I took on my modern microscope. Von Leeuwenhoek was probably the first person to observe diatoms ever. Sadly, he wasn't able to describe them in detail, so he isn't the official discoverer. That credit goes to an anonymous person who sent a letter of reply to the Royal Society regarding von Leeuwenhoek's work with a lovely illustration of the diatom tabularia in 1703. I found this super interesting since these observations were made more than a century before formal diatom classification started. Uh So cool. I love it. I also uh, thank anybody who is working in the sciences to better understand our world so that we can all better understand our world together. Uh, if you would like to write us, you can do so at History Podcast at com. You can also find us on the internet at MistInHistory.com and across pretty much any social media platform as in History. If you want to visit our website at MistInHistory.com, there you can find every single episode of the show that has ever existed long before Tracy and I were hosts. And if you look at the episodes that Tracy and I worked on together, you will also find show notes for those episodes. So come and visit us and explore some history with us at MissedInHistory.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit
1: HowStuffWorks.com.
0: The wait is almost over.